everybody. I've got open flame up here on the stage. If my pants catch on fire, you'll tell me, right? That'll be a, that'll be a Sunday we won't forget. Remember when Sam got third-degree burns on his butt and jumped in the baptistry? That's a, that should be all right. I'm going to be in Hebrews chapter 12 in just a moment, so if you brought your Bibles or if you have it on your cell phone, if you want to turn to Hebrews 12, and let me say this for those of you who have smartphones, if you do not have version downloaded on your phone, take it out right now and download it. It's okay. During my sermon, it's okay. Go to your app store, type in version Y-O-U-V-E-R-S-I-O-N. They have tons of different uh, translations. They got tons of different Bible reading plans. As we enter into a new year, it would be a great idea to just kind of commit to reading through the scriptures the entire year, and it is the best resource I'm aware of to help you do that, and they don't pay me a single penny for saying this. So version is what you should download, and so if you have it, uh, it's easy just to punch, 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 and you're right there at Hebrews chapter 12 is where we're going to be in a little bit. Um, Kelly and I on Friday, on Friday night went to the IMAX theater in Portage, Indiana. Ever been to the IMAX theater in Portage, Indiana? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah, a couple of, loved it. We went to see The Hobbit. That's what we went to go see, uh, that just, the new Hobbit that just came out. And what happens is, you know, we see movies that, like the first Hobbit years ago or last year, and I didn't really remember it, so we decided to watch the first Hobbit to kind of become familiar with the story once again before we go to the IMAX, which, as a side note, there's a time change between here and Portage. Just, that's a little tidbit for you. Like, I got the tickets, and are you going to come back? Like, it starts in 15 minutes. Like, it's a time change. Oh, okay, great, great, great. In the first Hobbit that we watched the other night, prepare ourselves. In the storyline, the great wizard Gandalf invites Bilbo Baggins to join him on an adventure with a group of dwarves to go on a quest to reclaim Erebon from smog. Now, if you don't know anything about the Hobbit, I might as well just spoke Greek right then. But they need a burglar. And they think that this Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins, would be a great burglar. But Hobbits, by way of personality move towards safety and consistency. They don't have a whole lot by way of personality for or place for an adventure. And so Gandalf makes his comments on how hard it is to find someone to go on such an adventure, to which Bilbo responds, I should think so. In these parts, we are plain, quiet folk and have no use for adventures. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things, they make you late for dinner. (laughs) But in the end, Bilbo Baggins decides to go on the adventure. And so there's a scene where Bilbo is running off with the contract that he was supposed to sign, saying that he would be a part of this adventure, being the burglar to help the dwarves in the adventure to come. And I know that by way of personality, some of us are drawn to things like safety and security. And the idea of adventure isn't nearly as appealing to you as maybe a quiet night with a book and some serenity. Others don't mind adventure, but because of where life has taken you over these last 12 months, You've had quite enough of it. And when you think through 2000 or, you know, 2013, you think, yeah, I, just a good year of peace would be nice. And I understand that. I've had those moments of weariness in the midst of life's adventures, and it feels like I'm ready for just a good season of good old security, predictability, and safety. And as we close out one year and prepare to enter into another, I'm struck with the reality that I have a decision to make in regards to 2014. Will this be a year of adventure, or will this be a year where I move towards security and safety? And as I say this, I do want to say, for those of you, like, really, 
your life this past year has been one roller coaster after another and you need just a season of rest and peace. I totally get that. I've had those years myself. In 1998, my oldest son Isaac here was diagnosed with cancer. And I remember just at the end of the year thinking, we just need a year of peace. Like signing up for another adventure was not on my list of things that I wanted to do. Just a good season of peace would do just fine. I remember 2003 was a year for us, even here at the church, that was so difficult. When 2004 showed up, I was just ready for a year of peace. I didn't need another adventure. I just needed some time just to catch my breath again. So I want to say this out loud for those of you who are weary and heavy laden, and you're thinking, no, I need 2014 to at least have within it a season of peace and security. I totally get that. I've been there myself. So if this year was for you, the divorce or the empty nest or being terminated from the job that you thought you would retire from or suffering through the diagnosis you didn't see coming or the adoption falling through or coming through the brink of financial ruin or saying goodbye and burying a loved one, if your heart is longing for peace and tranquility, I get it. There are appropriate seasons to rest, catch our breath, regroup, and figure out what next. But as I study scripture... What I'm struck by is how many people didn't get included by way of name. Like when you think of the hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions, who are counted among God's people, the vast majority are never mentioned. They're just lost in history. We don't know them at all. We can't recount anything about them, not only in Scripture but in history books as well. No note of them. They are stories that don't get retold. In fact, there's a couple statistics that I found interesting. Let me just ask you to see if this is correct. How many of you can name two or more of your great-grandparents? Like, you know your two or more of your great-grandparents' names. Raise your hands real quick. Okay. Okay. How many of you can, I can name one or one great-grandparent. How many of you, you don't have the first clue what your great-grandparents' names are? Go ahead and raise your hands real high. Who's in here? Okay. See, I knew you'd be smarter than the national average because you're living stoners, but here's the statistics. 33%, one-third of Americans cannot name any of their great-grandparents. And 50% can name only one of their great-grandparents. So the pick-me-up statistic for you this morning is, is that it's about 75 years at best. Statistically speaking, no one, including from your own genetic line, will remember who you are. (laughs) Good night, everybody. Have a great day with that. something to that, right? Just kind of like, it's really depressing. Like even my own great-grandchildren, you tell me like, like they'll have a hard time even knowing, what was his name? Uh, we can't remember. So with that, let's take a look at Hebrews 12, because we're going to read backwards. Picture it like a movie that kind of gives you kind of an ending scene and that has to work backwards. That's what we're going to do here in Hebrews chapter 12, and then we're going to skip back to Hebrews chapter 11. This is what it says in Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders in the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. 
Now, this is kind of the summation of what went before it in Hebrews chapter 11, which we'll get to in a moment. The first thing I want you to note here is that the writer of Hebrews notes that we are among a great cloud of witnesses. And when he uses the phrase cloud, what that means is probably that they're dead, that they've gone on before us. But they testify and they bear witness. And the second thing that he mentions is that each one of us has a race that is marked out for us. There is some competition that we are supposed to be engaged in that has been chosen for each one of us. And the key to that is to keep your eyes on Jesus, who he says is the pioneer, which means he's the first trailblazer in this race. And he is the perfecter of our faith. What I like as he ends this section is that he notes that it is easy to grow weary and lose heart on this adventure. And I would suggest that probably there might be some who are sitting here this morning who, after 2013, you just feel a little weary. And it's not too difficult to lose heart. That whatever race I was supposed to, it felt to me like I went off on a detour, and now I don't know where I'm running, and it doesn't feel like it has any purpose. It feels aimless. And the writer of Hebrews says, listen, there's a great testimony of people who went on before us. There is a race marked out for you. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Now, I don't know if anyone ever ran track, but what they'll tell you in terms of racing is you're to keep your eye at the finish line. Don't look behind you. The moment you look behind you, you become disoriented and you slow down whether you intend to or not. Don't look back. Always look forward. If you're plowing a field, what they say is don't ever look back. You have to look forward. Find a mark up in the front. Keep your eyes set on that. And what the writer of Hebrews says is, listen, keep your eyes squarely on Jesus moving forward. And when you feel weary and when you feel like you're just exhausted, remember that we've got a great cloud of witnesses around us. So let's go back to Hebrews 11. I want to share this with you. It's, it's a long chapter, but I want, I want to share it with you. And when I share this, I want you to pretend that um, you, you're grow, you grew up in a Jewish family and you know your stories and you know the scriptures and you know the history. And every time it gets recounted, there's just something in you that goes, this is my story. This is how, like when they listen to it, you are crafted in this story. Here's how it begins, verse 1. Now, faith is confidence of what we hope for, and it's assurance of what we do not see. Now, this is important when it feels like your race has gone off track and you don't know where you're at. And see, this is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command and that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And then he recounts the stories. It was by faith that Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he's dead. <laughs> Which, a good side note, and he's dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from the slime so that he did not even experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And then here's a little side note for you. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Well, let me just go on in our story. Let me just keep telling you our history. It was by faith that Noah, when warned about these things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. And it was by his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. And just going on, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place where he would later receive as an inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. It was by faith that he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob who were heirs with him of the promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. 
and by faith. Even Sarah, who was way past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he is good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sands of the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he had prepared a city for them. And if i got to keep going with our story, let me tell you, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. That was a crazy story, but it's faith. He who embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. And by faith, Isaac then blessed Jacob and Esau in regards to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each one of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. You see what the writer of Hebrews is doing? He's just going through our story. He's just starting from Genesis. Let me tell you our story and point back to by faith, by faith, by faith. Verse 23, by faith, Moses parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict by faith moses when he had grown up refused to be known as the son of pharaoh's daughter he chose rather to be mistreated along with god the people of god rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin in regard he regarded disgrace for the sake of christ as a greater value than the treasures of egypt because he was looking ahead to the reward by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. See, now we went through Exodus. Now we're getting to Joshua, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, even the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, to which everyone in the church said, Amen, because there's lunch to be had and we're already, it's going on for quite some time. But 33... Who through faith, they conquered kingdoms, they administered justice, and gained what was promised. Who shut the mouths of lions, okay, I'm in Daniel, but I'm going to wrap this up here. Quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead. Raised to life again. All right, now I'm talking about the prophets Elijah and Elijah. There were others who were tortured. They refused to be released so that they might gain as even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. Now, I think here, the readers, the ones who are listening to this, now they're thinking about other people in their church, those who've walked through persecution and even death for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
they went about in sheepskins and goatskins. I don't know if you heard about the stories from Rome and from the destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. Listen to this. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains. They lived living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Now, it strikes me that there's just so many people that we don't even have a name for. just don't know who they are. And at least in Hebrews 11, we're given a lot of names. Let me tell you our story, and it's full of names. And it says in the end that the reason why they're named is because they're kind of in the faith hall of fame. Like if we had a hall of fame for people who lived in our faith, they make it. They, they got voted in. It was, right, it was triumphant. But when I think about exactly why they're commended for their faith, in the end what I note is that each one of them risked. They took risk. Every last one of them. There's not one that is mentioned that didn't have to risk something for the purposes of God. It's what John Wimber says, you are just going to have to settle right now in your heart that faith is spelled R-I-S-K. That the kingdom of God is inherently a place of risk where we go beyond our own resources and our own intelligence and our own abilities and our own skill and place ourselves in the vulnerable position of knowing that if God doesn't show up, we're not getting back. And if God doesn't show up in this, this is not going to work out. And if God doesn't show up in this, this is going to be a complete failure. No one sings songs about, nobody names children after, nobody memorializes schools after, and celebrates holidays around people who play it safe. There is no reward in the kingdom of God for those who hear God's invitation to something significant in the kingdom of God and decide to stay in the waters of comfort and security and safety. In fact, Jesus will even tell a parable. It's in Matthew chapter 25, verse 14, about uh, uh, servants who are given some money and what they're going to do with their money. Here's what it says in verse 14. Jesus is speaking. He says, again, it's, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to him his wealth to them. Now, this is his money, and he's entrusting it to a servant. It's not their money. It's his money, but I need you to hold on to this for me while I'm gone. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and another one bag each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained more, but the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me the five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you now in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrust me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. And his master replied the same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put, in charge of, to put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. But see, here's what belongs to you. Now note for a moment, 
he gave him back everything that he, he didn't steal anything. He's giving him back the exact amount that he was given, right? That's, he hasn't stolen anything. He hasn't cheated anything. Here's what Jesus says, though. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that at least when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For who has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they, will, what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this, I think Jesus says, there's no better safe than sorry in the kingdom of God. Faith requires risk. To enter into the kingdom of God is to enter into an adventure in which, by faith, we yield control and outcomes exclusively to God. And so let me ask you, when was the last time you did something bold? I mean, you, you went out from the waters of safety and security, and you did something rather bold. The last time you colored outside of the lines, the last time you went on an adventure. Reinhold Niebuhr, a famous American Protestant theologian of the 20th century, served as both a working pastor in Detroit, and he also was a professor at Yale University. He told a story one time of a flatland farm boy who all his young life dreamed of being a sailor on a tall-masted sailing ship. And he slipped away from home, made his way to a port city, and enlisted as an apprentice sailor. The third day out to sea, the captain commanded that he assume the watch in the crow's nest, and the boy climbed halfway up the mast and then froze, going neither up nor down. He took an option that was not an option. He feared the ridicule, ridicule of the seasoned sailors on the deck beneath him so he would not go down. But he feared the heights above him so he would not go up. And he, he froze between the options and took neither. This seems to me to be the story of the one bag of gold servant. The servant neither risked the money nor threw it away. He simply kept it and did nothing with it. But fear is the killer of all great adventures. It paralyzes us into the status quo. It keeps us stuck where we are, where we are, in, where we are. It might be familiar, and that might be some comfort to us, even if it's killing us. An adventure in the kingdom of God is to say, I don't know what tomorrow will bring, but I'm keeping my eyes on Jesus, and he'll see me through it. And I would suggest for 2014 that you prepare yourself for an adventure. And that the adventure be based on faith that is spelled R-I-S-K. What are you holding on to that you need to let go of as you enter into 2014? And I say that seriously. Like, I, no, I know there's a risk. Like, there's some things that we hold on to because it's become a part of our identity. If it's become such a part of who we are, it might be some particular relationship. It could be some particular habit. But what do we need to let go of? Knowing that in doing so, it will be a risk as we enter into a new year. Where is that thing that you sense the tug on your heart that God is calling you to something, something that maybe you've never done before, something that you've never tried before, but over and over again, it just feels like in your time with the Lord, it keeps coming, that passion keeps coming back, and that giftedness keeps coming back, and that thing that you just, I think God has called me to that, and it would be an adventure. There's a sign along the Alaskan highway that reads, choose your rut carefully, you'll be in it for the next 200 miles. As we enter into 2014, what will we choose? 
in our life with God, there are times when he's inviting us to do something bold, to jump out of the rut, to risk keeping our eyes focused on him. Maybe for you this coming year will be stepping out into a brand new ministry or volunteering in a brand new way or giving up your finances beyond what is comfortable or investing in a relationship that is inherently risky or to do something big like build an ark in your backyard with all of your neighbors laughing or maybe it's saying goodbye to a toxic relationship or starting a new career or going back to school or downsizing your life to make space for a God-sized adventure. And I have to say, even for us here at the Living Stones Church, I'm ready to go on an adventure, like as a church, to make bold moves this coming year that we've never done before, and to launch out into directions that Jesus is calling to, to not play it safe, knowing that with it, oh, there's, there's great risks in this, that if we have capacity issues, that we take great risks this year, and resolve our capacity issues, to launch new ministries, to launch new ministry leaders. That all of us as a group that gather together at 718 East Dahmer Avenue take huge steps of risk, knowing that if God doesn't show up in this, this is going to be awful embarrassing. What happens is, is when one person steps out in faith, it typically calls others to step out in faith. There's something contagious about faith and risk that when you see somebody go out into it, you go, I'm going to do that too. I could do that too. Did you know that people have been trying to run a four-minute mile since the days of ancient Greece? For centuries and centuries, people were trying to break the four-minute mile barrier. They had wild animals chase the runners, hoping that it would make them run faster. True story. They tried tiger's milk. Here, drink this. This will make it faster. And nothing worked. So they finally just decided it was physically impossible for a human being to run a mile in four minutes. Our bone structure was wrong, the wind resistance was too great, and our lung power was inadequate. There were a million reasons. Then one day, one human being proved that the doctors, the trainers, and the athletes themselves were all wrong. And miracle of miracles, one year, Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. And after the year... So Roger finally broke the four-minute mile. After that year, 300 runners broke the four-minute mile. The very next year. And why? Faith. Risk. It calls people into it. So even if your personality leans towards safety and security like Bilbo Baggins, I'm hoping that the kingdom of God will encourage you towards adventure. To step out and risk even if you have no guarantee how it's all going to turn out. To finally say, in this coming year, I'm not going to be afraid of that anymore. That thing that's kept hovering over me, that has kept me in fear, that if I do this, this might happen. I mean, you know, right? You go through the whole list of, I know I should do this, and I want to do this, and I think God's even calling me to this, and, but if I do this, this, and you know, like we're very logical in these sorts of things. But there's something in the kingdom of God that calls us beyond that, too. I know. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And in the end, he will see us through the race of 2014. May it prove to you to be a most excellent adventure and something that might even allow your great-grandchildren to tell your stories and to remember your name. Amen? Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father, we have absolutely no idea what lays ahead of us. 
Like we don't, we don't know what will happen this afternoon, let alone this year that's coming up on us. What we do know is, is we want to trust you. We have great faith in you. And we recognize that faith oftentimes is about risk. And so we want to take those risks that are appropriate to your kingdom, to have our eyes squarely fixed on your son Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And then in the end, we might have proven ourselves as your servants to be worthy to be remembered by name. And we know, Lord, that you'll remember us by name, that we might even pass on a legacy to our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren of faith and risk and adventure in your kingdom. This we pray in Jesus' name.